Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 303, Laura Ann Gilman. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen. Unfortunately, flying solo this week, although there's so much to talk about, Christy and I just couldn't make, well, it wasn't anything to do with Christy. I couldn't make time, actually, to connect with Christy this week, unfortunately, but we'll cover a number of topics that came about this week, next week, when, when Christy and I can connect. But today we're joined by Nebula and Locus Award-nominated author Laura Ann Gilman. This is an interview that Christy had done following on the heels of NorwestCon. Actually, it occurred several weeks, several months even after NorwestCon. But I know Christy and Laura Ann struck up some conversations at NorwestCon and, and definitely did this interesting follow-up. They talk about a number of Laura Ann's works, as well as one of our favorite subjects, which is, in this case, not craft beer, but uh, the vino. Laura Ann has some some side gigs that she, she works and is very well-versed on wine. So I know she and Christy, uh, they at least offline talked about some recommendations, I'm sure. So we'll share those via tweets and maybe in the show notes. Um, but they they struck up that conversation. I mentioned some of the breaking news this week, and there were the nebulas. And coming up, as I'm recording this, the Campbell Conference is taking place. And unfortunately, I was planning on attending the Campbell Conference and believe I had spoken about that in, in prior episodes. But I'll actually be missing the conference because, unfortunately, my grandfather uh, passed away at the age of 89, and I'll be attending his services and actually speaking at his services this weekend, the weekend of the Campbell Conference. So unfortunately, I'll be missing it. But uh, my grandfather was very close to me, almost like another father. We had that kind of relationship. So I, I certainly need to be present for, for his services and, and partake, partake there. One of the other things I'd mentioned that, well, hadn't mentioned yet, but, and actually our guest, Laura Ann, has some remarks on this subject, and we'll link to those in the show notes, but there was a lot going on with respect to Tor, and some comments made by Irene Gallo, their, uh, one of their creative directors, and actually is one of the publishers of Tor.com. And Irene had made some remarks around sad and rabid puppies on her Facebook page that's receiving a lot of back and forth, a lot of conversation from a number of parties, including Tor directly. They've uh, issued a, an official statement that uh, we'll link to a couple blog posts specific to that subject. I certainly have some opinions on the topic, but I'm going to wait and hold those opinions until Christy and I can actually speak together on that subject. So be listening for those prior to episode 304 when Christy and I will bring you Karen and Patrick Weeks. We'll have a little bit of conversation around Tor's uh, official statement and Irene Gallo's remarks. But 
Until that time, I'm going to keep my comments brief, and I'm going to leave you with Christy and Laura Ann Gilman. So until next time, take care, everyone. I'm Solo again on Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, and today we have a special guest back at Norwestcon, the Seattle Science Fiction and Fantasy Convention. I had the opportunity to meet a lot of authors. For a new debut author, that is an incredibly humbling experience by any stretch of the imagination. While there was a lot of external buzz around the guest of honor, George R. R. Martin, there was another buzz happening in the bar and in the green room over another very well-known author in attendance who I was lucky enough to end up on an urban fantasy panel with, and my bragging rights for the conference is I did not make an idiot out of myself in front of her. Uh, that author is none other than recent transcontinental Pacific transplant, Laura Ann Gilman. For those of you not in the know, Laura Ann is the very loved fantasy and urban fantasy author who wrangles no less than four series, one of which, The Vine Art War, earned her a Nebula nomination, and the rest of which, according to reviewers, critics, and readers alike, are pretty darn good. A rare breed of writer, Laura Ann is also an accomplished editor, having spent almost 20 years in the New York publishing editorial trenches, the likes of which included Berkeley, Dutton, and New American Library. Laura Ann, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. For our listeners not in the know, how about you tell us a bit more about what you write? Uh, first, I have to say that I'm blushing horribly. Very little puts me to the blush, but you just did. <laughs> um, I, oh God, trying to define what I write is really difficult. I came out of the horror field originally, um, in the back in the mists of time. And I still tend to think of myself a lot of ways as a horror, dark fantasy writer, even though most of what I'm best known for isn't dark. But I've written not everything, but pretty much uh, fantasy primarily. But I've I've dipped into science fiction. I've written mysteries. I've written romance briefly. I write short fiction. I write novellas. I write novels, and I've written nonfiction. So when somebody says, "Well, what are you?" I'm like, "I'm a writer." Don't ask me about my genre because I, it's like, "Ooh, shiny new one." <laughs> And I'm off and running. And I have no idea what I'll be writing next year. It's, it all depends on, on what catches my fancy. I, I really, I mean, fan, fantasy is my, my first love and probably my truest love. But I can't say that I'm a fantasy writer and nothing else. One question I, I have is, you know, between fantasy and urban fantasy, do you find there's much of a difference between the two? Or do you sort of consider them, you know, sort of, I guess, two sides of the same coin? Uh, more it's a multi-side dice. Part of the problem is that the term that we use now of urban fantasy has come to mean something so different than it did originally. And it's become very narrow. How so? You say urban fantasy now and somebody thinks, well, kick-ass dame, uh, maybe some romance, but it's not paranormal romance. It has to be taking place in a city. It has certain aspects. A lot of people say, well, there has to be a vampire. You know, I mean, it's, it's very, or, or shapeshifters, or you, very specific tropes. But back, way back in the early years, by which I mean in the 70s and 80s, and I'm sitting here waving my cane at everyone, <laughs> uh, urban fantasy was really contemporary fantasy. And what it meant simply was first world, real world, quote unquote, real world fantasy that was happening in a modern world that the reader would recognize. 
and I mean Charles DeWint and um, I'm but here go blanking on names, but they were all writing urban fantasy. Emma Bull, the, you know, the godmother of of what became urban fantasy. People who say urban fantasy now wouldn't recognize them, hmm. those books, as being part of the genre. And it's for me, I think it's it's really become sad in a way that we've narrowed it so much. So to me, urban fantasy, as we use it now, is simply one slice of the huge pie that is fantasy. And contemporary fantasy is sort of a larger slice next to it that is broader. Then there's portal fantasy. I mean, all of the things, but it all it's all part of fantasy. It's just one narrow aspect of it. You know, uh, another thing that um, that I'm thinking of here is with just the different genres, uh, the different you know, sort of areas you write in, you also write under d- different names. Yes. What determines whether or not you're going to put a series under a different name? And, and where does that line sort of, sort of fall for you? Oh, it's, it, for me, it's all purely, I'll say it marketing, although it's not exactly marketing. It's sticker awareness. If somebody picks up a book that says Laura Ann Gelman on it, it's going to be in the science fiction fantasy horror genre. It's going to have something fantastical in it some element of what if over that wide spectrum. And that's, I mean, I, I, that's my widest range. If you pick up something that says L.A. Kornetsky, it's a mystery. There's nothing fantastical about it. It's a straightforward, you know, could hand that to any, any relative who swears they would never read science fiction, but they like mysteries and they would never know that a fantasy writer had written it. And when I wrote Paranormal Romance, Romance, I wrote as Anna Leonard. Again, as sort of a marker to say, okay, if you like my stuff, you might like this, but you have to understand it's not like the other stuff. They've all been open pseudonyms. You know, we've never tried to pretend it wasn't me or, or hide anything like that. It's simply been, okay, this is me writing this kind of book. Okay. Now... Another thing that came up, and I'm hoping I've got this number correct, we were talking, I, I remember at NorwestCon on the panel that, that we were on, I think it was Hard Boiled Detective Roots, yeah. you tried to figure out how many novels you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the number you settled on was 25. Uh, I think we had to hedge it because I was asking published or, you know, under contract or in, you know, in the mm-hmm. works. And the number will have changed since then because we had a new mystery come out this month. Yeah, somewhere between 23 and 27, depending on if we're counting the media tie-ins or not, which I tend not to. I tend not to count anything I don't hold copyright for. Okay. So that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you did a media tie-in for Buffy. I did media tie-ins for, I did two media tie-ins for Buffy uh, with Josepha Sherman, who's, who's unfortunately gone now. I did a Poltergeist the Legacy tie-in, which is still one of my favorite books. I did a locked room murder mystery when they said they didn't want a locked room murder mystery and, the, and they liked it anyway. Um, <laughs> there's, there's another project which I tend not to take ownership of because I was brought in after the fact to work with it and did so much work that the publisher decided to give me a credit. It's not something I would have claimed on Quantum Leap. I think that's it. <laughs> it was which- a long time ago. I'm old. Leave me alone. <laughs> No, it's just, it's amazing just how much, how much you've done in a very short period of time, because you, you started publishing in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's actually a very short period of time to be looking at, you know, 25, 27, 30 odd books if oh, you start counting the tie-ins. It's absolutely insane. My, um, my current agent and I have an agreement that I'm not doing that to myself anymore, because for a while I was writing three books a year. Okay. And um, I'm, nev- I'm never doing that again. 
And, and that was my question was how, what kind of a pace were you keeping up in order to publish like that? At that time, at the time, and, and now I'm a full-time writer, I was not trying to hold down a nine-to-five then. I was saying yes to everything that caught my attention and, and, and I thought would be cool to do. It was a great experience, and I don't regret any of the books that I wrote during that time. But it did get to the point where at the end of the year, I just collapsed in a puddle. And I just couldn't function. And after a couple of years of doing that, I thought, this is insane. I've got to find some smarter way to, to pay rent. That so if if you're look, we're looking at your career, it's mm. you had so you were doing the the full time writing and you were doing the three books a year. You also had a start earlier on in the publishing side yeah. of of the um, the publishing side of of pub, the editing side of publishing. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I've I've sort of wondered is, um, and I, I'm reading your books right now actually, is as a very accomplished editor. How did your career as an editor start and when did it morph into being a writer? And how does that editorial background influence your writing now? Somebody did my star chart once and said, oh, you have like, you know, nine planets in this one house. You must be a very focused individual. And everybody in the room cracked up <laughs> because, yeah, I am. You have to understand also that I'm like third generation writer and second generation editorial. You hear a lot of people talking about, well, they didn't get any support from their family or they didn't know what they were getting into. By the time I was 15, I knew exactly what I was going to be getting myself into. I knew that the life of, of being a writer was incredibly difficult. My mother's also a writer, and she's a literary fiction writer, and she's just kind of like, if you want to do this, you've got to also make sure that you're practical. So I went into uh, editorial right out of college, uh, working for Neil Nyron, who was, among other things, Tom Clancy's editor, and that was at Putnam, and about... Four months into that job, I got word that the editorial assistant at 8 Science Fiction had quit. And my friend down there said, you should apply for this job. And I did. And they hired me. And, you know, that was it. I was in genre for the rest of my life. You know, yeah, I was never going to escape. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, like I said, clawed my way to the bottom of the ladder over the next 16 years. But at the same time, I was always a writer. I was mostly writing short fiction. I am that person everybody hates to hear about that I sold the first story that I sent out ever. <laughs> uh, sold it to Amazing Stories, and then I didn't sell anything else for like a year and a half. So I was doing that, and I was poking at what I wanted to write novel-wise, but I was mostly doing short fiction. And I was, you balance it. You, you learn to go home and spend a couple hours, and that was when I was writing Staying Dead, when I first got the idea for that and started noodling on it. But it does... You're using the same part of your brain on two different full-time jobs, and it did, after a while, become very stressful. And when, at the time, I was, I was heading up the rock imprint at NAL, and when uh, Luna Harlequin bought the first three books in the Retriever series, I think everybody could kind of see the writing on the wall. And when they decided to eliminate my position, I was like, okay, that's, that's my sign. You know, there, there, there's my ticket off this train, and I took it gleefully. Uh, it was probably one one of the, the happiest pink slips they've ever given to anybody. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, all right, let me just finish up these projects I'm working on. Now they're like, um, I was like, no, I'm not walking away from my authors. I'm in the middle of edits. I'll finish this up, and then we'll we'll do all the severance stuff. So very good timing, severance. Oh, it, amazing, amazingly good. That way I was able to leave before I got burned out. But as, as to being an, an editor and being a writer, I cannot edit myself. I know that I really can't, but I want somebody who can do the kind of editing that I would do. So I have very clear goals for my editors. And you can't see I'm waving my hands as I talk. 
Um, I can hear you a bit, though. <laughs> and uh, what, what was interesting, though, is I was talking to a friend. I'm in the middle of, of second pass on, on a manuscript right now. And they're talk, we're talking about revisions. And she's like, oh, yeah, well, I do this, I do that. And I just kind of go through. And I went, oh, no, I, I basically write myself an editorial letter for second pass. And then I go back and, and, and there she's looking at me like, you do what? Um, <laughs> So yeah, it apparently it it did mess with my brain a little bit in terms of how not how I write, but how I go back and rewrite and how I look at things and what I want out of my editors. I I want an editor who's going to kick my ass. Otherwise there's absolutely no point because I'm the world's second laziest human being. <laughs> I would be the first laziest, but it's too much work. <laughs> and I want somebody who's going to come to me and say, "Yeah, that was pretty good, but" And then I have to haul myself off my ass and, and go do the work again because somebody pointed it out to me. And once it's been pointed out, I can't not fix it. But there is always that editorial brain in the back of my head going, okay, but why are you doing this? What are you? And it's all internalized, which is kind of weird. I tend not to talk a lot about my process because it's so tightly internalized that if I pull it out and try to look at it, it's like the, the old joke about the, how does the centipede walk? Yeah. And everyone is so individual. Yes, and it, and it, it, you know, successful writers everywhere all will have very different processes. So, it's it's kind of like that if it's not broken. Also, your process changes. One of the things I, I I joke, but it's not a joke, is that every book you write, you learn something new about how you write, and then you have to figure out how to bring that into the next book, which is why it never gets easier. <laughs> if it gets easier, it means you didn't learn anything, which which is part of the fun too of working with an editor. Like I I. It might be might be the scientist brain that I've got going, but if you're not working hard at something, it 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 almost takes the fun out of it. Yeah, you've also been in the industry long enough and on two sides of the pond, you know, with the editor's perspective and as an author's perspective, that you've seen a number. There, well, there are a lot of changes that people talk about <laughs> in the publishing world, and I can hear you laughing on the other end. And it's it's you know from everything from. It almost seems like every month or every two months, there's been this huge change. Publishing's dead. You know, um, we've got ebooks now. That's the end of print. All the booksellers are going to go out of business. What are, you know, what are the most surprising changes? And I guess the most valid changes um, or accurate ones that you've seen over your career in the industry. And what are maybe some of the more expected ones that you saw coming? I think one of the most wonderful ones has been the opportunity of self-publishing and the reduction of the stigma of self-publishing, sometimes not all to the good. There are too many people out there who think that, well, I finished it and I can slap it up on Amazon, therefore I'm done. <laughs> um, that makes me twitch. People know. But the ability to take smaller projects that publishing houses for very logical, I mean, publishing is a business. And, you know, it's not the publishing charity, it's not the publishing project, it's a publishing business. There are certain projects they simply won't take on. That doesn't make them less valid, it just makes them less, less profitable. So I think self-publishing, where you can take those, and, and small presses uh, started this process, taking that small project and making it available to this, the people who really want it has been the best thing to, to happen in the past few decades. As to the, the predictable, I've told the story before, I will tell it again, but I'm going to tell it now anyway. As I said, I'm second generation publishing. My uncle was an editor in the industry for many decades before I ever got in. And when, when ebook publishing first started to become a thing and people were flipping their shit everywhere, sky is falling, publishing is dead, yada, 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 oh my God, dogs and cats, you know, etc. My uncle told me that many, many years ago, he heard the exact same 
wailing and bemoaning and flinging up of hands because publishing was convinced this newfangled mass market paperback was going to kill <laughs> publishing. Newsflash, it didn't. So when ebooks were coming in and, you know, the rise of audiobooks and all of this and everybody's going, oh my God, print is dead, I just kicked back and went, let's wait till everything shakes out before we start engraving tombstones, okay? Because the story is the story. And audiobooks did not kill publishing. Ebooks are not going to kill publishing. It may shift it. It may reshape it. It certainly has. But the, the need for people to have stories and the need for a mechanism by which we get the best possible, best possibly crafted stories to those readers will continue. Uh, it's just that publishing got complacent and thought, well, this is, this is the form that the industry will be in because it's been like this for 30 years. And now it's not. And it's, you know, and, and it's interesting, too, because one, one of the things I keep hearing is that more books are being published oh, yeah. and being read now than ever have before. And, and part of that has to do with the Internet, not just, you know, self-publishing, although that helps a lot of books get out there. But just the idea that, you know, if, if, if even I think back to my own childhood at the library, it was a real pain to try and get a series if they didn't have it at my library because there was no Internet to search it. And now it's, if you hear about some book, you can just find it anywhere. And interlibrary loan. I think what we have to remember, though, is that more books are being published, yes, but each individual book is probably reaching fewer people. Mm. The days of the blockbuster, everybody has read this book, is rare now, as opposed to commonplace. The print runs for books, even including digital, have gone down. Now, we used to have a huge amount of returns also, so the economies of scale is slightly different now, which is a whole different discussion. <laughs> uh, don't let me go there. Uh, <laughs> that, that's the, that's the, the editor brain who sat in too many meetings coming to the front. But you've got people who can find exactly what they want rather than, well, this kind of looks like what I want. So there's, there's good to that, which is more people getting to write different kinds of books and reading different kinds of books. And then there's the bad of, but you, you don't get as wide a readership necessarily. Hmm. Do you ever think that maybe there's sometimes too much, you know, this is looking at the other side of the coin, do you ever think that maybe there's sometimes too much selection out there? Every time I try to search for something online. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I really don't know because there's part of me that says, oh my God, yes, because there's a lot of stuff out there that I think should not necessarily be out there. Mm -hmm. But then I realize that there are people who love that, who are enjoying that. So who the hell am I? To say that shouldn't be published. Mm -hmm. Would I rather that my darlings got, you know, the, the, the authors I adore got more attention? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's why I show them. But I have no right to say, well, that shouldn't have been published. because, Well, I used to have that right because I had the checkbook. <laughs> but again, then some other publishing house. There, there are a number of authors I let go and said, no, I'm not interested and went on to do very well at other houses. That's just how it goes. Mm -hmm. So now I... My gut as a reader or as an editor sometimes is like, oh, God, I, that shouldn't have been published. But in general, no. I guess the industry is still changing so much with just selection and books out there and, you know, um, with the technologies changing that I, I guess every time you get settled into seeing one thing, it's going to change a little bit. I, I, I guess we're still going to see a lot of changes with just how the publishing world is going to settle over the next decade or two. And by the time, of course, the information's out there, it's going to be useless to us <laughs> right now. Everything, I mean, if you look at technology, if you look at how we watch TV, going from, well, we have four channels, whether you want them or not, depending on your market, 
to we have 500 channels to I'm getting rid of cable and just watching it through Hulu or, or Netflix. And that's all happened in an incredibly compressed period of time. Mm-hmm. In terms of if we look historically at entertainment. So everything is faster and everything is changing. And yeah, it keeps you on your toes and it, it, it's certainly good for the sellers of antacids. <laughs> I should have bought stock. For the editors and the authors. For everybody. <laughs> the booksellers. Oh my God. You've got multiple series. Mm-hmm. You also write in multiple universes. But one thing you've done quite successfully, I've noticed, is that you've managed to branch out with multiple series in a shared universe. So uh, what you'd call an urban fantasy author, I, of course, picked up your um, Cosa Nostradamus series. So, for example, you've got Paranormal Scene Investigation and Retrievers and then Sylvan Investigations all within one particular universe. Yeah. How do you come to the decision when you're writing or when you're planning stuff out to expand on characters that you've already created or have in a book and then make the jump successfully to turning it into a new series. And the the reason I'm fascinated by this is a lot of authors attempt to do that and very few succeed. And you've managed to succeed at doing that. I think, well, to, to take the first part of the question, by the time I was a third of the way through the second book, I knew that it was going to be a five-book story arc of what happens to Ren and Sergei. And then we did the sixth book to sort of close that out and, and deal with all the, the, the threads and the what came afters. And they probably would have been okay with me continuing on with those characters, but I really felt that I'd told the story. At the same time, I was writing some short fiction, and I was doing stories set in that world. And a character who had been a walk-on in the series kind of stepped forward. And it wasn't, oh, I'm going to pick this character and I'm going to develop something. It was, I wrote this short story featuring this character, Bonnie Torres, and I thought, wow, okay, this is interesting. And she's got this backstory that I think could be really interesting. And then suddenly I'm sitting down and I'm writing the outline for a book. It very much has to be organic for me. I cannot, I am so crap at taking a pragmatic business-like approach to the actual stories. Everything else, yes. The business side, I can be cold-blooded about, but not my characters. <laughs> They have to decide that there's, there's something that they want to say. And I did the four books for Paranormal Scene Investigations, featuring the pups, and I was done. I told their story. And I, I still get people going, but where's the fifth book? I'm like, <laughs> I don't, there is no fifth book yet. I kind of, the, the entire PSI series, in a way, was me taking the romance trope of the, the faded love and just screwing with it. Because that's what I do. I take tropes, apparently, and then I hurt them. Um, which makes it interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize I was doing that till a couple of reviewers pointed out. I'm like, oh, right. Oh, oh, cool. I'm smart. And then I had been talking to my publisher about, well, I want to do this character, this spinoff character next, because this is really cool, and it will, it will tie in those first two series. I should point out, by the way, that Paranormal Scene Investigations and Retrievers, I did something remarkably stupid that I advise writers never, ever, ever to do. Mm-hmm. I wrote them to overlap in time. So the events of the three books of PSI are overlapping the first five books of the Retriever series. And why is that a bad choice? Because I didn't keep good enough notes. <laughs> <laughs> I was an idiot. Uh, I um, Talk about nervous breakdowns. Oh, God. It's, it's difficult because you have to have everything at least vaguely tie back in appropriately because the readers notice. And I just, I was losing my mind. So then I decided I wanted to do a spinoff that would sort of follow on the events of those 10 books, 
and that's where Sylvan Investigations came from. But at that point, my publisher wanted me to move on to a different universe. So that's why Sylvan Investigations, were, the novellas were self-published through Bookview Cafe. And they've been a lot of fun because I get to play with novella length, which I love. And novella length is coming back. I'm seeing a lot more novellas coming out. It's, it's very useful for digital, where you don't have to say, okay, you know, it has to be a certain length, and you have to certain amount of money. It's, the novella length, some history here, back before the 1980s with the explosion of the big fat fantasy, a lot of novels were 70,000 words and nobody blinked. So this is in a lot of ways just sort of a, a, a ratcheting back to some of that. Of, of these more slender books rather than saying, well, it has to be 100 or 150, 200,000 words. This, again, we're going back to the whole, the option, more options we have now. As to the second part of your question about how I did it, I studied romance. Really? Best-selling romance authors, they don't necessarily do, okay, well, one-off, 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 one-off. They will do a book, and then they'll take the heroine or hero's brother or cousin or best friend and will give them their story. So what you have are people who, readers who already know and love that setting and that feeling, they can come back and see what happens to everyone else. And that really hits a lot of people's want button. So I thought, okay, let's see if we can do that the same way with fantasy, with characters who are familiar, but you don't know their story yet, rather than having to introduce them to this entire new world, let them go back and visit a different neighborhood. I had no idea that romance, I, I'm getting over, I'm just sort of running over the head the fact that romance novels do that. I had no idea. I don't read much romance now. When I was still in publishing, most of my, my good friends were romance editors, so I would be picking up stuff constantly because they're like, oh my god, this is really great. And yeah, there's a lot of, of uh, Nora Roberts is, is certainly notorious for that, and I mean notorious in a good way. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's, it's very much a, a trope that they use uh, to continue on in a world. That's fantastic. So for listeners out there, if, if you, you know, if, if you are looking to successfully do what Laura, Laura Ann managed to do, um, start looking at Nora Roberts and some of the other uh, romance books. That's, that's actually, it's very cool when you can go outside of, of um, what you normally write in and learn what other well, I think you have to. done. Yeah, absolutely have to. I mean, it's, I've been, I've been a mystery reader for longer than I've been a fantasy reader. And uh, the reason I ended up writing mystery, actually, is because my editor at Simon & Schuster came to me and said, you know, most of the retriever, the customer's dramas, those are all mysteries. I went, well, yeah, I like mysteries. She goes, you want to write a straight mystery? And I went, oh, yeah, twist my arm here. <laughs> because you, if you're only reading, even in one genre, even if it's a wide reading of the genre, you're missing out on so much that is interesting and that can be used that I, I can't imagine being able to write consistently without getting a lot of different input from different sources like that. No, that's, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm actually going to be after this, um, I'm reading your books right now, but, um, I'm, I'm actually going to look up some Nora Robert Roberts after this. And queen of head hopping, <laughs> uh, which is, every, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm like, until you know exactly how not to do it, then you can go try it and, and look at her and say, Oh my God, how is she? Oh, it just, it, I stare at the page and go, that should not work. <laughs> Speaking of things that should or should not work, um, uh, when I found out I was on a panel with you, um, I actually had friends of mine, uh, writing friends of mine, say, oh, you're, you're on a panel with, with Laura Ann Gilman. Watch what she does and, and do what Laura, Laura Ann does because, you know, she's a pro and you will not make an idiot out of yourself if you, you know, if you basically follow 
follow her model. And it it became just really, and it wasn't just from one or two people that I heard this. Uh, it became really obvious really quickly um, just how quickly the writing community, uh, sci-fi fantasy writing community, uh, respects you as a, as a professional author. So, you know, what advice would you give to authors going to a convention as to how to conduct themselves professionally, whether they're on panels or at signings or, you know, um, you know, for example, what mistakes do you see people making the most? Why are they mistakes? Uh, I think probably the worst and most understandable mistake I see people make, especially on panels, and it's not just new writers, they think of the panel as a place to promote themselves. And, and I see this on social media, too, far too often. You have somebody who will sit up there and pile all their books in front of them like a barricade between themselves and the audience. And I was guilty of this, too, periodically when I was younger. And they will interject. Every example is their own work. Or they'll talk about what they do, no matter what the topic is. And yes, you want to do some of that. You want people to know what you're doing. But that's why we do the little spiel at the beginning and the end. Hi, here's my book. Hold it up. Go look for it in the dealer's room. I think the best thing that people can do is let go of that and think of the panel as a chance to show yourself off and to show off your fellow panelists. I get asked to moderate a lot of panels. And the one thing that I've learned is that everybody's got something interesting to say and everybody's got a completely different take on things that can lead discussions in wild directions and, and in really good directions that you can't predict. But you, you only get that if you're actually listening to people and you're, you're playing off what they're bringing to the table, not just what you're bringing to the table. And I think that's where a lot of, a lot of newbies and a lot of established pros make a mistake of thinking that it's their performance rather than a group performance. It's almost like the idea of, of people waiting their turn to talk versus listening necessarily yeah. it's, that's exactly what it is you know you talk you talk while I'm thinking what I'm going to say next and you can't do that I mean you certainly can't do that when you're moderating I've, I've perfected the fine art of listening with one ear and jotting down do notes with one hand and keeping an eye on the audience and there's a reason why I have headaches after I moderate <laughs> but it is I think if I was going to give one piece of advice to take away to anybody who's uncertain about how to act professionally at a convention would be be kind. Listen to the people you're talking to. Listen to the people who are there to, to hear you. Think about what you're saying and what it's going to mean to them and why you're saying it. And don't just get up there and let your mouth run. Mm -hmm. Because you're not there just to promote your book. You're not there just to network. You're not there just to do anything. You're there to interact with people. Even those of us who are massive introverts and just want to go home and crash for a week after every convention, which is probably <laughs> I'm a social introvert. I love people. I love hanging out with them. And then y'all should just go the fuck away. I was going to say too, you really do practice that be kind, um, be kind rule because, um, and, and again, I'll, I'll toss this just out there for listeners. Me being a debut author, I, of course, nobody knew who I am and, and knew about my book. And Laura Ann was nice enough to let me sit beside her at the uh, signing tables. Uh, otherwise, I would have had nobody to talk to and I would have been sitting there by myself. So you, you really do practice that. I, I strongly suspect anybody you sat next to would be happy to have talked to you <laughs> the entire evening. I, you are not exactly a shy and retiring flower with nothing to say. <laughs> but it was my pleasure. 
So you've got three upcoming works. You mentioned Quad, mm-hmm. which is a mystery. Yes. So that's under another, that's under one of your other. That's, that's under um, L.A. Kornetsky. Kornetsky is my grandmother's maiden name. Okay. It's out next week. It's the fourth in the gin and tonic mysteries that are set in Seattle. Uh, although the fourth one, Claude, is actually mostly set in Portland. And they're, they're a lot of fun. Yeah, the, um, the two main characters are a private concierge and a bartender who live in Seattle. And they solve crime in their spare time with the help of the bar cat and a, dog, a mostly Sharpe dog named Georgie. They were a lot of fun to write. And there's a cat, Seattle, yeah. and a bar, which kind of, and, and a mystery. So and it's, it's kind of like a perfect book. <laughs> it's you, a perfect storm of a cozy, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so again, for listeners out there, we'll have a link in the show notes for people who want to go find that. So you were saying you weren't going to be doing three books a year, but you also have Silver on the Road in the Devil's West series coming yes. out. And that's brand new. Is it like a supernatural Western? Because from the cover... It looks to me like it should be a supernatural kind of Western. And the description. Trying to describe these books is really difficult. I mean, my agent and my editor and I will just sit at a table and stare at each other and go, I, I got none. <laughs> um, again, like, like some other projects, this came out of short stories that I was writing. A short story called Crossroads, which is actually available online. And another story, The Devil's Jack, which was out in an anthology last year called Dead Man's Hand, I think, where I was writing sort of fantastical literary-ish magical realism westerns and it was just it was something I was playing around with I just I I love the tone I love the feel the story the first story actually came about because I was teaching at a workshop and I gave my students the challenge to write an opening paragraph where they introduced the antagonist the protagonist and the narrator and they were all three different people and because I practice what I preach I did the exercise with them and that out of that came the story Crossroads and I started writing a third book third story and I was about 15,000 words in when I realized maybe it wasn't a short story oops (laughs) (laughs) but it is set in 1801 in the American West so yes it is a, a fantastical western but it takes place before what we think of as the old west there are no gunslingers there are no bordellos it is set in what would have become the Louisiana Purchase, this incredibly wide-open territory where the native tribes outnumber any white settlers, and by white I mean Spanish, English, French, everybody, by a huge percentage, ruled, in quotes, by somebody that everybody refers to as the devil. And back east they say, oh, if you go out there to survive, you have to sell your soul to the devil, there are demons running around, there's magic everywhere, crazed magicians. Most of this is actually true. So this is the world that I'm working in. It's not Weird West exactly. It's not fantastical historical fiction exactly. It's not alternate history exactly. Somebody who read it for quotes actually described it as if, oh, I'm blanking on the author's name, but if the Silver John stories and Stephen King's Dark Tower books had had children. This would be it. That would be it. And I just I kind of sat on the floor and cried happy tears because, oh, my God, yes. <laughs> oh, it's going to bother me now that I've, I've read the stories and I can't remember the name of the, the writer. Oh, I warned you. I occasionally forget names. We'll see. We'll, I'll, I'll see if we can find them before, yeah. uh, before the show goes up and, uh, and post it so that people, people can look that up, too. That's, I mean, that was, the, that was exactly it. I wanted that feel of, of American mythology and by North American mythology, um, everything that, that we've become where it started. And as a history major, I wanted to play with the idea of why the U.S. expanded and what would have happened if they hadn't been able to. 
I mean, all of these things came together in writing these books, and they're killing me. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on the second book now, and they are killing me. I love them, but it's everything I've ever learned in writing every book and every short story up until now is going into these books. I'm very curious to see what you've done with it. As I've been reading your urban fantasy, I'm, I'm very curious to see what you've done with that kind of almost Western trope. You have a third book coming out this fall, winter too, which is Work of Hunters. That's a, it's a novella. That's a novella. Okay, but that, but that still counts. That's three books. <laughs> Um, yeah, that is the third Sylvan Investigations novella, and there'll be a fourth one coming out beginning of, of next year, um, assuming I actually get the manuscript to my editor and then into production, she said, hiding her head. Um, and they're they're kind of, I, I get to sort of fall back on the fun, well, they're not lighthearted because I do terrible things to my characters, but uh, the the supernatural mystery set in New York Danny Hendrickson, who is the main character, is half human, half fawn, all issues. His sidekick is, is a young black woman who is, is a seer and, and sees people who are about to die. So you know, they, they've got some issues they need to work out. But these are much more easygoing books to write. Versus. And they're a lot of fun. But it's, again, set in the coast of Nostradamus, so I'm going back to familiar stomping grounds. Okay. So from the Twitter peanut gallery, we did get a question request you know, and it's, of course, the internet, and you've always got to be, you know, worried when you ask the internet something. <laughs> what is your favorite beverage? And conflict of interest is totally okay. Oh, this is funny because I have a reputation. I know, hard to believe. I have a reputation for being a whiskey drinker. Uh, and it's true. I am. Very long story short, when I first went over to head up the rock science fiction imprint, I was very young. I was in my late 20s, and I looked younger. And in order to make the sales force take me seriously, I had to be very, very serious. And one of those things was when we were at sales conference, they'd be drinking. I needed to drink something that they would not sneer at. They were, you know, girly drinks were right out. They're drinking tequila. I don't drink tequila. Tequila and I are not friends. But I did know that I liked whiskey. So I started drinking single malt, neat, the good stuff. And I could nurse one or two drinks all evening and nobody gave me shit. <laughs> so this became sort of my default convention drink because I can drink pretty heavily and not lose my filter, which is very important. That's another piece of advice for, um, for okay. new conference goers. I, 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 I'll do a small plug here. At Bookview Cafe, I actually have a little do-as-I-say-not-as-I-did advice book called Practical Meerkat's 52 Bits of Useful Advice for New and Old Writers, <laughs> which has a lot of this stuff in it. But the truth is that given my druthers, when I'm being social rather than working, I drink wine. Uh, I mean, I, I convinced a publisher to let me write an entire trilogy based on wine magic. Wine is, is my thing. I could fill up in another hour entirely talking about wine. <laughs> I got you a Nebula nomination too. Yeah, so you, yeah. you know your stuff. I, I love everything about the making of wine and the drinking of wine. I don't have a particular favorite wine because so much of that is dependent on mood and what I'm eating and, and the weather and so forth. And but, the year, too. Yeah, vin well, vintages matter, but there are certain types of wines that you know you love. Mm -hmm. But again, that, that could take us an entire hour to go over. You could do a special booze edition. <laughs> we might have to on the show at some <laughs> point. But yeah, no, uh, wine is, is definitely my preferred adult beverage. <laughs> Where can people find you for your writing on social media, but also for uh, your editorial services? Because you're a freelance editor now as well. I am, I am freelance editing pretty much book through most of this year. But on Twitter, I'm L.A. Gilman, easy enough to find. And, mm -hmm. and I, tend, I tend to be very mouthy on Twitter. 
Facebook, again, real simple, Laura Ann Gilman. I, I accept pretty much all friend requests. I should warn people that there, there tend to be a lot of political discussions also, and the first rule is be polite, the second rule is cite your sources. I blog at LiveJournal, because I'm old school, and that's Suricatus, which you'll have to do a link for because nobody will ever get the spelling. Okay, we will do that. So again, show notes people, uh, we'll have the links in there as well for, uh, for people to find, uh, find Laura Ann. And I have all these links through my website also, which is, simply enough, lauraangilman.net, keeping, keeping it simple. And editorially, generally, just dropping me an email and asking, because I, take, I only take on clients after I've had discussions with them about what they need and what they want to get out of the experience, and then we, we talk about exactly what we're going to do. So I don't have a, a sheet of rates or anything like that. It's, it's very much one-on-one. You know, it's, it's interesting as well. We get a lot of listeners who ask about um, editorial and self-publishing aspects because uh, we have a lot of listeners who are aspiring writers and are looking to self-publish. You know, and, it, you know, it's, it's now, you know, as everybody points out, is, is a very viable model that you can't ignore anymore. So I guess one last question I'd love to ask you is mm-hmm. what advice do you have for people who are going into self-publishing? It's a huge, huge pond now, and you've got to present yourself like a professional, both to your potential editor, but also to your readers, which means thinking about things like not just the words, but also the packaging. You can't half-ass it. You can't even three-quarter-ass it. I would say if you're looking for an editor, look for somebody who's got experience rather than somebody who just says, well, I, I used to edit friends' papers back in college. Specifically fiction experience, there are a huge number of editors. Uh, Mary Teresa Hussey, who is my editor at Harlequin for many years, is freelance now, and I, I, I send people to her on a regular basis. A lot of science fiction editors are now doing freelance. So look at the resume. See if they actually edited for a major house. See who they worked with. I am very uh, willing to give lists of, of who I've worked with in the past to anybody who asks, and you, know, you can go and talk to them. It's the same as hiring any professional. What's their background? What's their experience? Who speaks highly of them? Because you're hiring somebody to, to work with you, ideally long-term. You know, not just a one book and you're gone. You want this to be a relationship. You've got to make sure you get the right fit. Very cool. Thank you so much for spending time with us on the show today. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. To all those Adventures in Sci-Fi listeners, we'll be back next week, uh, probably Brent and me. So hope you enjoyed. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>